The 25th of July 2018 was a very hot summer day. As I drive up from Belgium to the Netherlands, the air condition just about copes with the heat. Crossing borders within the EU is such a non-event these days, but it still feels special to me, every single time. I'm on my way to the oldest city in the Netherlands, Nijmegen, home to roughly 170,000 inhabitants and the Max Planck Institute for Psycholinguistics, or MPI for short. Oh, here it is, Max Planck Institute. The, so this really seems to be like a campus here. The Max Planck Society, named after the, the physicist who brought humankind quantum theory, currently runs a total of 84 institutes, and the one in Nijmegen is one of only five outside of Germany. In 1979, it was tucked into a small wood just outside the city centre. Here we are. I'm here to meet someone who has come a much longer way than me in many respects. Mike Lowrod. There he is. Yeah. Hey Michael, how are you? Good, how are you? So great to meet yeah, you. Yeah, great to meet you. And thank you for taking the time. Sure. A self-proclaimed intellectual oddball and a professional outsider, he holds an MA in linguistics and a PhD in English from the University of Texas at Austin. When it comes to academia, he seems like a bit of a case of square peg, round hole. But Michael manages to leverage his background to write about language in a unique way. And he's been doing that for many years now. He has two books under his belt, Babel No More and Um, and many bylines in publications like The Atlantic, The New York Times, or Science Magazine. I first came across him during the crowdfunding campaign for Schwa Fire, an online outlet for long-form journalism about linguistics and language topics. Think This American Life, but for language. I think in the last five years, maybe, the amount of coverage that I've seen has gone up dramatically in English language publications and that the quality has really increased. That said, there are some topics and some ways of talking about topics that I'm surprised still come up. Editors are still interested in, which is frustrating for me because I'm, I underestimate people's or I overestimate their appreciation for the new and underestimate their ability to see that something has been done, mm. you know, before to death. And I guess I'm just too much of a modernist. I always want to be doing the, doing something that's new. Like, mm. advance the conversation was, all, was also a journalistic kind of idea that I had that, um, that, you, that, you try to, that you're trying to push, that you're trying to push the understanding forward. But one thing that I'm interested in, you know, still interested in, are the ways that language influences and impacts um, real life. In that summer of 2018, Michael was about to wrap up a residency at the MPI's Language and Genetics Department, a one-year writing residency. Part coup, part reward, part lucky break, as Michael puts it. The Max Planck Society has opportunities for journalists to be in residence at any MPI. This MPI has never had a writer in residence before, so I'm the first. Round peg, round hole. And a lot of people have been, oh, it's interesting to have you here. What are you doing here? 
As I told the audience at the staff meeting a couple weeks after I showed up, we're creating this role together, you and me. I don't know what that meant, but it sounded good. I was aware that there might be many more people to come after me in the same role, and that we shouldn't fuck it up. One of the jobs I invented for myself was to look for untold stories about the place, stories that even the people there didn't know. My job, to hold up a mirror so that they could see themselves. At the outset, I wanted to really investigate that question because mm. I could imagine okay, you're going to have someone here uh, who's a writer. Does that, does that mean that I'm going to write feature articles for your alumni magazine? Yeah. Or <laughs> that wasn't a requirement at all. Mm. It was, if you want to do stuff like that, that would be great. What I used the time for mainly was there were a lot of articles that I wanted to do that I knew that publications would be interested in, mm. but it would be published online and the pay for those things would be so low mm. that it just wouldn't justify justify the time because and I, I think I have pretty high standards mm. for the stuff that I that I want to do and I don't I don't work particularly fast and so it made sense to then come here and do some of those things and knock some of those things off the bucket list. Uh, it also gave me an opportunity to really dig into areas that um, that I knew that I wanted to write about but didn't know anything about. And so I got to spend a lot of time on a particular area. This deliberate approach to writing manifests itself when I enter Michael's office. Is this an old typewriter? It is. Uh... That scratching noise you hear? That's a bunch of little rocks that he rearranges on top of the typewriter, a ritual he started back in the US when writing, typing, in his garage. I switched Sorry. to working with one three years ago, or switched back, Yeah. actually, because, uh, you know, as a, a young writer, I did all my stuff on typewriters and I really see. liked the thinking process and the creative uh, creative process involved in typing and retyping and um you mean because it slows you down because of the way it works yeah 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 and also that it focuses you on the piece in the moment yeah um the, and and i've been working on a process by which i you know like write paragraphs and then go back and redraft them or revise them even if they don't need any editorial changes specifically um, and there's something about putting it back through my hands and then through my brain and then output that allows me to pick up sort of things that I want to change it's a it's a prompt to different kinds of creativity One thing I loved about coming into the place was the smell of the soup of the day. Whatever was cooking in the canteen filled the whole lobby with its scent and gave it a homey feeling. Geselig is the Dutch word for cozy, 
which is an aesthetic and important cultural value which people seemed to practice often. You'd come into the building to the unforgettable smell of soup. It was like coming into your grandma's house. If your grandma also lived in an aggressively modern steel and glass building with high-angled staircases and abstract art on the walls. It had the hush of a library or a deserted airport terminal, a restaurant before it closes. The architects had clearly read the pattern language as the relative narrowness of the entrance gave way to ever-expanding spaces and surfaces of glass as you moved into the institute. Instead of drilling in, you were drilling out. Past the canteen and its irresistible soup, the floor descended a level, and the two levels were connected by both stairs and a ramp. Standing at what felt like the very center of the place, but which was not its heart, you would see in one direction stairs going up to the new wing. To the right was the glass-enclosed library with modern furniture and gathering tables, plants and pillars rising up like trees. To the left, a door into the main auditorium, outside of which were a row of severe gray busts of famous brain scientists, all men, stuck on poles. I wrote some funny poems about those heads. Back behind you was the entrance. With windows so huge, the forest that surrounded the institute felt half inside the building, not in a threatening way, but creating calm. The walls were mostly white, complemented by mustard yellow upholstery on the couches of the canteen. down any of the hallways, you'd be struck by the overwhelming quietness of people hard at work. Each open door revealed someone working at a computer or keyboard, like a miner in their hole pecking out ore. What you wouldn't immediately see is a layer of chatter, hidden to the ear but revealed on social media, mainly Twitter, going on between researchers near and far some even in the same building. I wondered what other backstories of lives and language existed around me in those quiet halls. The working language here is English. The day-to-day language and the language of meetings and presentations and things like that is English. There are a lot of Dutch speakers here, mm-hmm. so you hear a lot of Dutch, but they all speak English, you know, to varying degrees, but mostly fairly well. And it kind of becomes an opportunity for the non-Dutch speaker to sort of shift into Dutch. Language science has to be a big tent if there are going to be big discoveries. And MPI was a big tent. I think it's important to understand that the commitments of the Max Planck Society overall are to do innovative, cutting-edge 
science. You can see that here, particularly in some of the projects that are going on, for instance, in um, genetics. Uh, mm. What are the genetics involved in producing um, the language-ready brain? So that's an important focus. There's also a research group that studies bats and the genetics of bats and their vocal communication because bats are one of the few uh, types of, of, um, of animals that are vocal learners, meaning that they have to learn their calls from other, uh, from, from adults. Mm -hmm. um, and if they don't have that exposure, then they don't produce anything or what they produce doesn't sound like their species. And then there's really interesting um, work like down the hall, there's a project on individual differences in language abilities, which is an interesting direction for the psychology of language to go in because so much of the work over the last 40 years, even longer, has been to try to pick out what is invariant mm. among um, within populations or even to just do a lot of experiments with college students, say, and claim on the basis of those samples, that what they're finding is universal. The MPI for psycholinguistics was founded by a Dutch psycholinguist named Willem Levelt. Perhaps it's telling that Levelt's first scientific contribution before he became interested in language and the best work he ever did according to him, was on a phenomenon of visual perception called binocular rivalry. When one image is presented to one eye and a different image presented to the other, the two images aren't seen as superimposed on each other, but perceived as their own things, one at a time, back and forth. The rivalry exists for the eyes, not the brain, which gives each visual input equal time. It doesn't tame or annihilate their differences, but gives them space, an opening to be together and yet remain themselves. It struck me as a workable metaphor for how psychology and linguistics and neuroscience and genetics imprint themselves on the MPI, which doesn't blend them into the same field, but gives them space to be themselves in the context of language. It's an imperfect metaphor, obviously, because the hope is that these pursuits inform each other more than two separate visual stimuli do. The point is, there's no rivalry, though the great challenge is to get them to interact which is something the directors and others target as a concern. You know, this is the kind of place where you go out to make coffee and in the shared kitchen, uh, you bump into someone who you saw give a talk on the genetics of skull shape and brain shape. So ancient brains are kind of flatter and more modern brains are, are globular. And you say, hey, that was a great talk. And it turns out that 
she's also working on the genetics of synesthesia. <laughs> so even that brain shape finding or discussion was totally new to me. Mm. But then to realize that that there could be sort of a genetic way of looking at synesthesia and that synesthesia as a phenomenon is so diverse but is patterned you know within that diversity that was really interesting the commitment to trying to understand language in an evolutionary frame how did things get to be this way and the willingness to reach back beyond uh, human species not only to proto-humans but to other animal species mm. um bats like bats yeah mm. uh, and seals mm. is really really interesting because you know in my own linguistics training and my own formal linguistics training those kinds of things were kind of declared off limits uh real linguists don't talk about that and real linguists don't find that interesting <laughs> uh, I see. uh and yeah. they and they dis- you know there's a lot of policing and mm. what blew my mind was like really i think most of all was the absence of any policing mm. was going oh that is like oh yeah we could talk about it. i could see how that connects one of the things that i've been interested in in tracking and i ask people about a lot is how much of that is mpi how much of that mm. is europe and how much of that is is mpi and certainly some of it is europe simply because uh chomsky and uh ideas had some some foothold here but people who espoused them never had the same amount of power over publications and funding mm-hmm. and, and hiring as they did in the states mm-hmm. so uh it's never kind of developed a, a political edge here mm-hmm. but also being at a place where one the commitment is to cutting edge science uh and to basic science and to funding people mm. you know um there's no discussion at all of if only if only we had money that would be really interesting to look at mm. there's things people people are very well taken care of here very well resourced when there aren't very many resources the stakes become very high for the resources mm. for for fights over the resources that exist and so here people don't have to compete in the same way mm. um and be territorial in the same way living in a foreign country had long been on our bucket list but neither of us had any idea about how much work it would actually take I had lived abroad before, but as a younger person, without a family, and without the complications and lubrications of the early 21st century. When I moved to Taiwan in the early 1990s, half convinced that I would spend the rest of my life moving around the world, my kit comprised a backpack and a suitcase, a manual typewriter and a tourist visa, which I had to renew every three months in Hong Kong. It was that simple. This time, I had a wife and two kids, a daycare contract and a school fee, a stipend, a business to set up for the stipend to pass through, a bank account for said stipend to end up in, two accountants, one Dutch, one in the US, two Dutch bank accounts, one personal, one for the business I set up, 
and a phone and data plan along with two laptops, two iPads, and two smartphones. Not to mention a property manager and a renter for our U.S. house and a friend to take the cat. In Holland, there weren't only a lease agreement, a municipal ID number, and a residence permit that was attached to a scientific research visa, there was a specific bureaucratic sequence involving each. Fortunately, as bureaucracies go, we experienced the Dutch one is fairly swift, no bribes necessary, and very few lines. The complexity of such a move was exhausting, dizzying. Without my wife, who dealt with the financial logistics, packing up the household and getting everything into suitcases was my job. It would have been impossible, but we did it. On our third day in the Netherlands, our first order of business was buying the bikes, which we rode for the rest of the year. We had no car. Only three or four times during the year did we really need one. My wife and I, the whole family really, spent our first five months or so psychologically weightless, which wasn't altogether unpleasant. We were unmoored, but not in danger. Then there was about five months of experiencing the local gravity. Living in Europe was the reality when someone said they've been to France for a conference or going to Austria for a vacation. It was no big thing. Those months felt great, grounded, attached, limitless possibilities stretching in front of us and boundless opportunities to realize them. That all came to an end. Those last two months introduced a hurtling reality of an accelerating gravitational force and by the middle of August, we had smashed back to Maine. How was your trip, people asked, as if we'd orbited the Earth once or twice, when in fact we'd established a moon base, journeyed to Mars, explored asteroids, learned to float and fly, and solved numerous technical challenges on the fly. It wasn't a trip. It was a life. There's an article that's about yeah. um, what it is that we, that's kind of an assessment of what we know right now about mm. the, the language of the dying. And I've done, I'm doing that for the New York Times magazine. I would really love to have, you know, just one relationship with one editor or one publication. <laughs> <laughs> If you're out there listening. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. But the book is about um, that, but also first words. So kind you get of both ends covered. Yeah, yeah. And, and you need to do that because the last words stuff is so heavy. It is. And so yeah. dark. And yeah. it really makes people uncomfortable. Yeah. But if you can kind of leaven it with the other side. And, mm. and I think the two need to be together because even in linguistics and in the sciences more generally there's not i mean some people do but you get one or the other you don't get the full trajectory i spent a lot of time reading in and around um palliative care mm -hmm. and hospice care 
and um, cognitive states, cognitive behavior, uh, mm -hmm. diagnosing death, um, experiences of dying, experiences of caregivers and family um, in those situations. It would be multilingual mm. for sure yeah. um, one, once I start getting into it. What I've heard anecdotally is you know that, that nursing homes and hospitals have to have to get multilingual staff mm. because as people approach the end of life they often revert to uh, an L1 um, regardless of however much time they've spent using an L2. Uh, I don't know that there's so that's anecdotal. I don't mm. know how much it's true for all um, sort of later acquisition, sort of later bilinguals. Um, and I don't know what what uh, sort of early bilingual behavior is like. Mm. The truth is, is that this is a population that is so incredibly understudied. And I know that I keep tweeting about this, but mm. there really is not very much done on this at all. There's a lot of stuff on language and aging. There's mm. a lot of stuff on language and dementia, Alzheimer's, mm. with monolingual and multilingual populations both. Mm -hmm. um, but they sort of stop at a respectful distance yeah. from the very, very end of life. That's where I want to yeah. go. Mm. Yeah, that's where I want to go. There was nobody mm. at MPI who, who does that. There's very much a focus on language acquisition rather than language attrition. So linguistics as a whole and psychology have been oriented towards what infants and babies do, you know, beginnings, because they're easier to study and they're fun to spend time around. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, there are just way, you know, the, the ethical hurdles, yeah. the methodolog methodological hurdles with the, the, the dying population are so high mm. and... Um, and there's so much variability uh, that that's why people have said, uh, that's why people have, have really not tackled that. I haven't tried it in the U.S. Mm -hmm. so much. Um, I mean, it's, and it's all kind of professional professionals either way. Although we'll see, I'm going to come back for the Drongo Language Festival in November, and I'm going to have a little lab where I'm collecting both first words and last words from people. And we'll see what kind of things people say, you know, about last words. Uh, my sense is, though, is that actually in the Netherlands, um, because of the euthanasia laws, mm -hmm. that there might be more of an openness uh, to talk about death and dying than in other places. But uh, you know, I've talked to people in the U.S. and I've talked you know, professionals in the U.S. and to professionals here, and also to people who do some work in um, China and Japan, and have said to me, "It's really great that you're working on this because it really is something that people need to get more comfortable um, talking about." What that says to me is that they see a lot of resistance, but they want to encourage you to yeah, <laughs> keep yeah, trying. Yeah, yeah. yeah. in this list of trips and places is a progression of ease and familiarity so that by April we were seriously thinking that we should stay.
looking back, we should have. So many times in Europe, I found myself doing things I knew I couldn't have been myself if I hadn't done them. And that leads to the consideration, which we could only know in the now, that was an unknowable future then. Everything we feared, disliked, and wanted to escape from in the U.S. is even worse and more intractable than we remembered. And I feel trapped living here, adrift and yet immobile, disconnected and useless. Last year, I got to meet the uh, the translator for the French uh, yeah. version of uh, of Babel Noir, Adieu Babel. And this was after the French version came out, or was this more to prepare the translation? Uh, I didn't have any interaction with her during. I don't think. Right. Um, it, I mean, it's interesting that there really isn't more interaction that mm. is promoted by either at least on my side by the agents or the publishers mm. you know like you send you send the pdf of the manuscript off and then you don't hear anything from anybody mm. and uh then they ask you for figures and for photos and photo permissions yeah and then the book comes out <laughs> and that's it and that's it and yeah like oh. hey uh like like who are you and so mm. one thing that's been really fun about social media is like being contacted by the Arabic translator of right. Babel yeah. No More. Like it would be great to meet, you know, in a more extended way and talk about um, his experience doing the book. Mm. And it was great meeting the French translator uh, whose name is Naima Kartu. And, uh, you know, because like she really appreciated the book. I mean, mm. it was a super special Mm. Uh, thing to meet her like she was almost like a co-parent yeah you know in a way like she had a really for the French edition yeah yeah, mm. yeah that she had a relationship to that to the English text and to the French mm. text uh, that nobody else has and she read it and she had to read it in a way that you know even the original editors mm. you know uh, didn't read it so I felt really super honored to to get to meet her Those are the words that I would also use to describe that summer day in 2018. I did feel super honored to meet Michael, grateful for his time. The connections he had made for me at MPI, more on that in the bonus track of this episode. And I'm really grateful to him for sharing parts of a beautiful essay he had written about his time in Nijmegen. Those are the bits with music underneath that you've been hearing throughout the episode. Thank you, Michael. 
or in the words of former MPI director Steve Levinson. You're like an artist, he said. You collect these interesting moments or bits and make something out of them. It made me fall even more in love with the place. I felt seen. What was MPI? As far as apt comparisons, Hogwarts comes to mind. So does Mecca. An MPI alum compared it to Shangri-La. An anthropologist, Gunther Senft, called it a paradise for language researchers. In order to succeed at your writing residency, you also have to not succumb to the fantasy that this niche ought to be your permanent home. You're temporary, you don't belong, and it doesn't belong to you. It's been granted a kingly gift. Ultimately, the king will take it back. You can't have it forever, that's the point. Once you take from it, it must cast you out so that you can spread what it offered around. A bee doesn't live in the flower. It must buzz free. This is a list of nouns collected by me from the MPI Proudly Presents presentations on June 20th, 2018. Activity, ADHD, age, alignment, alpha power, ambiguity, artificial language. I think a lot about what has been talked about at MPI 40 years ago, and I imagine that artificial language was not. Asymmetry, attention, autism, baby, which was certainly a familiar noun then, bands, bats, bats. 40 years ago, the notion that bats would not only be mentioned, but be the subject of a whole presentation on the future of the Institute would have been unthinkable. Beep, brain, brain organoids, CDH3, clarity, cluster, collaboration, communicative success, conditioning, connectivity, constraint, context, convergence, correlation, cortex, CTNP1. Data, delta, design, development, diagnosis, dialect, differences, directions, discourse, dish, disorders, distance, diversity, efficiency, electrode, entrainment, esoteric society, expanded neuroepithelium. Many of those terms were unfamiliar 40 years ago. Some hadn't even been invented or discovered. False positive, families, finding, FOXP1, FOXP2, frequency, fruit, gamma, genes, genome, genotype. Here we are, the unthinkable is reality. The discourse changes, we call this progress. Grammar, gray matter, group, hemisphere, hemodynamics, high constraining condition, HPSCS. Imaging genetics, incongruent processing, index, indices, infinite informativeness, integration, intellectual disability, intelligence, item, label, latencies. A list of nouns scraped as my attention slides by, allowed from a day of talks is a rough measure, but as a finger in the wind, it tells you something. Learning, lemma, lexical item, longevity, macrocephaly, 
mammal, manuscript, meaning, medial surface, mega-analysis, memory, milliseconds. Model, modeling, morphology, mother, motion, mutation, N400, narrative, network, neural activity, neural lineage, neuroectoderm, neurons, nodes, onset, oscillation, p-value, participant, performance, phase, phenotype. I mean, as you listen to this, think about the nouns that aren't here. Maybe I overlooked them because they're so common to disciplinary discourse. The greater possibility, and I think this is actually the case, is that they're not present at all. Planning, population, predictability, prediction, predictions, prefrontal region, processing, production, rate, regions, representation, resting state, results, rhythms, sample, segments, sentence triplets, sex, signal, sound, spatial information. Species, speech, speech artifacts. Once we hit the S's, things get to feeling familiar again. Stability, standard, stem cells. Uh, maybe not so much. Stimuli, uh, back again. Subcortical, away. Syntax, home, text. Theta power, time period, tongues, tree, turns, variance, variation, ventricular zone, vocabulary. And just a note about the construction of this list, I kept a running list of nouns on my phone as I heard them, then later alphabetized the list. Typing it up later was my first look at this scoop of talk, so I haven't seen before the three words that end the series, which are artifacts of alphabetization, it's true but which, you have to admit, pulse with a power that deliberation would fail to produce. The three nouns are these. White matter. Wings. World.